Welcome to the South Canaan Valley Church of Christ podcast. Please enjoy the following study. As many of you know, if the Lord wills, it is Aubrey and I's intention to move to Fort Smith in July or August to, to labor in the kingdom of that congregation there. And as such, the, the reality of our impending departure is weighing heavier on me. We're excited to go and be a part of that. But as I look out here, I see a lot of people that I love and that I'm going to miss very much. And there's a sorrow and a bittersweetness that comes to that. And with that, the, the realization that I don't have many times to speak comes before me. And I'm thinking about what are the things that are most important that I want you guys to know before we leave. And as I was setting through Ephesians, I was struck by Paul's prayer that we'll be looking at today. And many of the petitions and things that we see here really resonated with me as prayers that I have for each of you. So let's read through this prayer together and seek to learn some things from our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Paul prays, or Paul says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age which is to come. Here Paul gives this prayer on behalf of the Ephesians. And there's, there's four things that we want to note that will kind of serve as our outline for today. The first is the reason for the prayer, that he gives thanks for them and makes mention of them in his prayers. Secondly, that he, he wants the eyes of their understanding to be enlightened. But it's not just in general, it's a specific thing. He wants them to know the hope of his calling, what Christ has called them to. And finally, he wants them to know the exceeding greatness of, of his power toward us. So if I was to summarize this quickly, I would say that because of what they've already done so far, Paul wants them to be further enlightened to know the, the riches of Christ and the power of God. So that's what we're going to be studying this morning. Let's look at this first section here in this opening here. Paul begins with an important word, and the word is therefore, okay? The word therefore is a, is a word of causality. It's saying because of what I've just said, what Corbin read for us this morning, because of all that, I'm going to do the following thing. So Paul's prayer flows out of this. Essentially, this is a prayer that flows out of the last 12 verses that we read this morning. Paul has lifted up this beautiful hymn of praise to the triune God for the miracle of salvation that he's accomplished in Christ. This salvation was not just some afterthought, as though God looked down and said, oh no, humanity has sinned and we need to fix it. No, before the foundation of the world, God predetermined that he would send Christ to save the people of God. This raises many modern questions of foreknowledge, foreordination, predestination. We're not going to stick with those today. If you want to talk about them in the lobby, I've got more time than you do to talk about those, okay? But suffice to say, the purpose of this is that God chose Jesus Christ. The purpose of Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 is that say God chose Jesus Christ as the means of redemption whereby he would reconcile all things to himself. Jesus was plan A from the very beginning. All creation is going to be joined to God the Father in perfect unity by Jesus Christ. Verses 7 through 10, I think, give this explicitly clear, or especially clearly. Speaking of Christ, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Here the point is that redemption is found in Christ and in Christ alone. I think verse 10 is especially important as it points to the particular purpose here. According to his purpose, God had a reason for this. The salvation that we have in Christ isn't just so one day when we die we can go lay on harps and play, or excuse me, lay on clouds and play harps all day. Which is good news because for some of us, eternal harp music sounds a whole lot more like unending punishment than unending reward. Regardless, God has saved us for a purpose. God has saved us for a mission. God has called us to participate in his, his mission and his call, his project, to unify all things in Jesus Christ, to unite them. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we have a ministry of reconciliation. That's what God has saved us for, is to participate in that. And that call of the gospel should ring fresh in each of our ears. The idea of unity, because we live in a world of disunity. We live in a world of division. We live in a world where it seems like everyone takes what they hear, the information, and they say, how can I polarize this to drive a wedge between people? Not everyone does that, but it certainly feels like that some days. That people are trying to say, how can we drive people further apart? And the call of the gospel is that we can have true unity in Jesus Christ. That we don't have to have unity that's token unity based on a political or economic agenda, but rather Christ calls us to unity on the basis of our redemption in him that we are all sinners before God, that we have failed, that our lives are messed up and ugly, but Christ in his beauty invites into true life and allegiance and faith with him. And so that's what Paul's praying for. That's why Paul is praying. That's why Paul says, therefore. Paul's saying, this is a great and beautiful truth, and you guys are getting a piece of it. Notice what he goes on further to say. He says, therefore, after I heard of your faith, so because of what God has done in salvation before the world began, and because of your faith, Paul just begins to pray. It's not one of these to the exclusion of the other. Paul's already prayed with thanksgiving for what God has done, but now he's going to focus in on what they have done. It's kind of like the, the, the Ephesians' faith is a catalyst for Paul's prayer here. It's like the eternal purposes of God are baking soda, and the Ephesians' faith is vinegar, and there's this reaction that naturally comes out of it that Paul just has to pray about this. He's so excited as I am this morning. There's two quick implications I want to draw with this for our personal prayers. First is that prayer should be rooted in the eternal purposes of God. It's rooted in theology. That's a word we sometimes mock and make light of as kind of a fancy word. But theology just simply means who God is and what he has done, and that is a glorious thing to dwell upon. That is a wonderful thing to think about. Sometimes we neglect the deep things of God and the wonder of what God has done in Jesus Christ because we want to cut to the chase. We want to, okay, you're preaching. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do with this? And Paul's going to call for, for change in action momentarily. That's a super important part because if we don't have change of action, this, this lives in a library. Okay? And God's eternal plan of redemption should not be contained to a library. It should be bursting out into the world in the people of God. But when we pray for others... Let's allow ourselves to be motivated by the character of God. And let's not be detached from the overarching story of the Bible. Let's not become divorced, disassociated, or disconnected from God's eternal purposes to where we just see the needs in front of us, but we see the bigger and grander plan of God. So as we pray, let us make known and magnify the glorious gospel of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The next thing there 
is this is a prayer of thanksgiving. So coming out of this prayer and going into the, in, into the next prayer, Paul's praying with thanksgiving. And that's especially important because he's about to pray for them to change some stuff. Okay? Why is it so important to pray with thanksgiving before you pray for personal change? Well, let me just ask you in general, when was the last time you were thankful for the people in this room? When was the last time you went around and prayed with thanksgiving for them? Not about them. Not that they would fix stuff. You were just thankful for them. And I don't mean in a general, I'm so thankful for my church body, which is great. You should pray that prayer. I'm thankful for my leadership. You should pray that prayer. I'm talking about going around the room and being thankful for the individual people who are here. That's super important. Not just for the people who are in our leadership, though it's important. Not just for someone who's blessed you, but everybody. As 1 Corinthians 12 says, we bestow greater honor on the one that seems to have less honor. And it's easy to look at the people who are flashy and participate and that sort of thing and be thankful for them, but be thankful for everyone. Because the people who are less flashy, they may need it more. They may be struggling. They may be hurting. Moving into this, thanksgiving can keep you from contempt and hatred. It is hard to hate someone that you are thankful for. Because the world and Satan is going to give you ideas in your head about your sisters and brothers. They're going to give you thoughts that are going to enter your mind. And if you build up a wall and a fortress of thanksgiving for them, you will keep yourselves from contempt and hatred. Especially if you're working through a sin problem with them. Because if someone says, hey, I need some help, you know what you do? You start looking at the problems. And that's a good thing to do, to help them through that. But if you only see their problems, you don't see them with the perspective of God. And so if you choose to be thankful, even in the midst of their problems, even in the things you're working through, you'll give them a fair and just shake. As Paul prays for this, I want to encourage you, just as an application here, to go through the directory and pray with thanksgiving for everybody. Simple. Go down the list. Just say, thank you, God, that this person is a member of this body here. And on a personal note, I want to say my personal thanks for the congregation. And one of the reasons this is a prayer that really resonated with me is the thankfulness that I have for you and the way that Christ Jesus is made known by your faith and your love. So we've got the reason for the prayer out of the way. Okay? Paul sees their faith. Paul sees the eternal purposes of God, and it coalesces and it manifests in his prayer. He's going to talk about three things that we want to look at. That's the enlightenment that he prays for, for riches and power. As we've talked about so far, Paul wants them to get that the riches of Christ are great that whatever God calls them to is worth it, and that he can accomplish his purposes. Let's talk about this idea of enlightenment. Here in this verse, it says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. What does this mean? Paul noticeably prays for the spirit of wisdom. Let's talk about this word spirit for a moment. What does the word spirit mean here. Well, it almost surely does not refer to the Holy Spirit, which we were sealed with in the previous passage. Instead, it seems the word spirit here means the intent, or your, your, your mindset, rather. A manner of conduct, a description of character. We might say someone has a joyful spirit. We might say someone has a generous spirit. We might say someone is down in their spirit, or they have a heaviness in their spirit. And what are we pointing at there? We're pointing at something that's emblematic of their character on a deeper level. It's not just a fleeting passion or some sort of emotion or, or something like that. Instead, it's something about just who they are when your spirit is like this. And Paul wants these particular Christians in Ephesus to have that sort of thing here. They would have a spirit of revelation, a spirit of wisdom in the knowledge of Christ, which 
What does that mean? Well, let's keep going and see what we've got here. We'll talk about specifically wisdom and knowledge kind of as synonyms because they work together, and we'll talk about revelation and and understanding uh, in a moment here. So let's talk about wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge is to know the facts. It's to know the facts. It's to understand the truths and the precepts of God. But wisdom is then to have a deeper understanding. It's a depth of understanding beyond just textbook recitation. Perhaps you've had an exam before, and you study really well, you've got your outline, you've got your lecture notes, you do that, and you've got all that stuff memorized, and then you get to the exam, you're like, okay, that's not how I thought that was going to be. You may have understood the facts, but you couldn't necessarily apply that. As we think about this in, in the knowledge of God, it's easy to know, 1 Corinthians 15.33, that bad company corrupts good habits. That's a passage I heard growing up as a young person in Bible studies from like 5 and 6 and 7 year old. Bad company corrupts good habits. It's easy to understand that. It's easy to memorize that. But it's hard whenever you're in middle school and high school and your friends are going out doing things they shouldn't do to realize that bad company corrupts good habits. It's hard to see that at play when you're first experiencing peer pressure. That's what wisdom means. Wisdom isn't just, I can quote you the verse so I can have my sucker. It's, I am going to go do this and live this verse out so I'm not a sucker, okay? That's what Paul wants is to have this sort of wisdom. Because there are times we can have the knowledge of what God wants us to, but we can still not apply it. Paul wants them to go deeper. He wants them to have a knowledge of Christ, his mission, his heart, his character, and he wants them to understand how that plays out in the wild and what it looks like. The next thing which we'll take a little more time with is this idea of revelation and enlightenment. Revelation and the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. What is revelation? Well, it's a tricky word because it it refers to, it's the, also the name of the last book of our, our, our New Testament, um, which is extremely difficult. And they're related, in a sense. The word revelation just means something that has been revealed. Something has been revealed. There are certain truths about the gospel, the nature of reality, and the wonder of Christ. They go from hidden, they go from concealed, obscured, to plain, apparent to see, from veiled to clear. And the word revelation here that we have in this text today is a form of the word which comes to us as apocalypse, um, which in fact is the, the, the Greek word for the final book of the New Testament, though the comparisons end there. So what does he mean by revelation? Does it mean there's all these flying beasts going around and weird imagery and eschatology? No, it's, it's nothing quite so complex. Here by revelation, Paul just simply means something going from unclear to clear. Let's notice an example where Paul talks about a revelation he had. In Galatians chapter 1, it talks about how he's advanced in Judaism. And in verse number 15, it says, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and revealed me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. So Paul's doing some other things um, in this line of thought. But he says, I was going along fine in Judaism. I was proceeding how I thought I should. And all of a sudden, God revealed something to me. God showed me something. The word here that is reveal is the verb form of revelation. So the reveal is something that is done. The revelation is the thing that is revealed. On the way to persecute Christians at Damascus, it says here in Acts chapter 9, verse number 8, it says, as he journeyed, he came near to Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. So in between this, Paul sees this light, and then Jesus starts talking to him. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me, Paul? And Paul's like, who are you? (laughs) And Jesus reveals the purposes that God had for him. See, in that moment when Christ appeared to Paul and rebuked him for his, his persecution, Paul saw something. 
Paul understood something. I think that the, the Luke is very intentional here when he says, when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. And there's something going on with what we might call spiritual and physical blindness in sight that's going on here. Because Paul was blind. The light and the glory of Christ had eviscerated his eyes. He couldn't see anymore. But his eyes were wide open spiritually. Physically, he was blind as a bat. Spiritually, he could see everything clearly. Because before he had thought that the way to serve God was with a certain paradigm. He had a certain worldview, a certain frame of reference, but it changed when the blinders came off and Jesus was revealed to him as he truly is. Paul had this moment of clarity that reality was something different than he had come to believe. And this is what Paul is praying the Ephesians would get. This is what Paul is praying that they would understand that just like the personal presence of Christ burst into his life, that the personal presence of Christ would burst into the life of the Ephesians and it would invade and it would disrupt so that the glorious blessings of God could be permeated and lead them to life. Paul wants what happened to him on the road to Damascus, despite the pain, despite the difficulty, despite the disruption, to happen in each and every one of the Ephesians' life. And I would argue he wants it to happen in each and every one of our lives as well. When Christ breaks in and things change. Think about this for a moment. Perhaps you've had something like this happen before, maybe in a school subject. I, I see this in the classroom a lot of times. You, you struggle to get something. You know, sometimes when I'm, I'm teaching on the board, I'll turn around and the kids have got eyes this big. <laughs> they're just, they're in fear, flight or fight mode, okay? They're ready to go. They don't, they don't get it. They don't understand it. These symbols I'm writing on the board are weird. I'm a math teacher for those of you who don't know. But they're lost in lecture and they struggle with the homework. They come to office hours, they go to the math tutoring, things like this. And there comes a moment and it clicks. You didn't get it. But now you get it. Now you understand. You struggled and you sort of had it. You were kind of getting close, but there comes this moment of clarity. We might call this the, the aha moment. That was the moment for Paul. When the lights came on and he was physically blinded, his spiritual eyes were open. He could see the true nature of reality. And just like in Ephesus, okay, just like in Ephesus, there were some people who needed the blinders to come off there's some of you who need the blinders to come off today. There's some of you in this room, I don't know who you are, but there are some of you in this room who need the blinders to come off. You're walking around with one view of reality. You're walking around thinking you've got it all figured out. And you're hopelessly and miserably blind. If you're sitting there thinking, yeah, other people need this, I'm glad he's preaching this so somebody else can hear it because that person needs it and you don't think you need it, then you're the person I'm talking to the most. Let me be real. If you don't think you need this, you need this more than anybody in the room. If you think in your pride you've got it figured out, you need to hear this worse than anybody. And that's what I want for you. That's what I want you guys to see. That's what I want all of us to comprehend together. In his prayer, Paul says, I'm praying for you. He doesn't say, I'm praying for some bad actors in here. He doesn't say, I know there's some of you at the Ephesian congregation that need your eyes open, and the rest of you are fine. All of you need your eyes opened. He's praying for this as a congregation, but it doesn't happen without each individual person experiencing it. Paul's praying that each Christian would come to know personally and more deeply what Christ is calling them to, nobody 
is exempted from this. But let's think about this for a second. Let's think about the, the, the history of the Ephesian congregation. If you guys know much about the history of Ephesus, it started on tumultuous times. As Paul preached the gospel there, things were disrupted. Things changed. Let's notice what here the passage I was going to get to. Acts chapter 19, verse number 9. This is talking about those who came to faith in Christ. It says, also many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and burned them. Burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. The Christians were convicted that this witchcraft, this idolatry stuff, we don't want any more part of it. And we're going to take those things which are vestiges and memorials to our previous life, and we're going to take them, we're just going to burn them. We're going to get rid of them. We're done with them. 50,000 pieces of silver. How much do you think that is? How much do you think 50,000 pieces of silver? Well, one piece of silver is theoretically one day's wage. So before you grab your pocket calculators, at minimum wage, that's $3 million. At $15 an hour, that's $6 million. At $50,000 a year, that's about $10 million. That is a huge sum of money. That's a lot of money. I think if you totaled all the cars here uh, in the parking lot, you wouldn't hit that sum. As a ton of money. And they all said, it's not like they said, okay, we're just going to save this and we're going to give it to Jesus. They said, no, we're just going to burn it. We're just, it's just going away. We're done with it. We're not going to try to save this and salvage some monetary gain out of this. We love Jesus so much, we're just going to devote all of this to destruction. The next chapter you read, they so disrupted the local economy, they caused a no-joke riot. A riot. And yet Paul says, some of you need to get your eyes open. How many of us have sacrificed like, like that? I haven't. If people who gave like this and sacrificed like this need their eyes open to see the glory of Christ, how much more do we? How much more should we beg and plead with God that he would show us his son, that the blinders would come off and we would have God's view of reality rather than that which the world gives to us? And as I go, this is one of the things I'll be praying for each of you that God would open your eyes, that you would come to more deeply and fully know what God is calling you to. We should ask a question, though, a reasonable question to ask. Paul wants enlightenment. He wants revelation. About what? There's tons of world religions that have the idea of enlightenment, the aha moment. It's, it's not foreign in any ways at all. Uh, 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 an opponent of Christianity that's going to rise up within about the next hundred years or so is called Gnosticism. And it's the idea of secret knowledge that you get. Is that what Paul wants? Is some sort of secret knowledge, some aha moment? Other, other religions such as Buddhism believe you should um, deprive yourself so that you can get the aha moment about the source of reality. Is Paul calling for some mystical trance where we roll on the floor and it stirs up an emotional fervor? No, that's not what he's praying for. There may be an emotional response, but we're not trying to engineer biology here. The knowledge that Christ wants is not emotional, but it does live in the mind. Wants of an emotionalism and sentimentality are actually cheap counterfeits for what Christ wants. Christ doesn't want you to have emotionalism. He wants to give you something much better. And he focuses it in two areas. The first one that we'll talk about is the riches of Christ. Paul doesn't want you to just have an aha moment. He wants you to have an aha moment about how rich Christ is. And further, about how powerful God is and the power of God. So he says, I want you to know what is the hope of your calling and what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. He wants them to internalize 
the hope of his calling. The hope of one's calling pertains to the confidence that we have in what Christ has accomplished and what he offers. It means to be more fully acquainted with the promises and rewards of God. Christ has called each of us to participate as ministers of reconciliation. It believes to understand that beautiful hope that he's called us to. Later in chapter 4, as Paul pivots in the book, he's going to talk about walking worthy of the calling that we're called with. Walking in accordance with it. Behaving in a manner that is seemly and reflects this glorious truth. Before we're talking about ethical behavior, which is reasonable and necessary because of this truth, Paul wants them to know and grasp the magnificence of this call. And this is so important because there's some of us who struggle with sin for a long time. And all we've done is behavioral modification. We haven't come to know how rich Christ is. We haven't come to experience the hope of his calling. Let's further think about this. Not just the hope of his calling, but the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. We'll take a little bit longer to unpack this one. We need to understand just how rich the inheritance that Christ has for us is. What do you think about when you think of the word rich? What do you think about? I think about two things. I think about treasure and dessert. (laughs) Two of my favorite things, actually. Um, For treasure, I think of a vast storeroom. Gold, silver, jewels, paintings, artifacts, cash. It's just in there, and it's heaped up. There's so much that you couldn't use it even if you tried. It's almost like if you devoted your entire life to spending all of that money, you couldn't even make a dent in it. That's how rich and vast this wealth is. When I think about dessert, I think about a sweet, delicious, heavy slice of chocolate cake. Okay, um, Something you see on the Great British Baking Show. I don't know if you guys watch that show. Love that show. Big cakes at the end. That's one of my favorite parts. And the one I've got in my mind anyway, you can, you can build your own. It's got four layers, uh, and in between one, there's whipped cream, there's frosting, there's mousse, and there's a chocolate ganache on top that it's dripping off of. It's the kind of thing that, like, you take one bite of it, and you're like, I'm done. (laughs) That was enough. I need some milk, I need some coffee, I need some water, I need something to cut how sweet this is. But when it's setting on your plate, you take one bite, and you're like, that was enough. But you go back for another, and another, and another. As you're sitting there, you're eating it, and you're like, this is so good. I want more of this, but I can't take any more of this. Whenever you finally stop, it's so rich, you're not going to have any more. There's nothing else in the world you want. You don't want another meal. You don't want another dessert. You just tasted of it, and you're satisfied, and you're fat and happy. That's the sort of fulfilling and satisfying and blissful richness in a spiritual sense that is only found in Christ. That sort of depth and vastness and bliss. Notice what Paul says in Philippians 3.8. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul had a lot of stuff going for him. Paul had a lot of things that were greater than a lot of us have going for him. He was advancing. He was young. Uh, he, was, he was gaining power and prestige in the Pharisees. Probably had some wealth, some honor, things like this. And he says, I'm going to put all that aside. And that's worth nothing. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
Think about the way we evaluate value, the way we put money on opportunities, on advancement, on jobs, on, on property, whatever it is. And Paul says all of it compared to knowing Christ is just worth nothing. It's all worth giving up. That's the richness of what Christ is. When Paul's eyes were opened, he saw that what Christ offered rendered everything else in the world expendable. Everything we have is worth throwing away for gaining Christ. And we may sit here and think to ourselves, how could that be? That's why we need to pray that God would teach us to know the riches of his grace. Because if we're sitting here evaluating that proposition and thinking, is it really worth it? Then we don't know it like we need to. We need to know it more. Now, let's say this. There are a lot of you, as we reflect on, on this section here before we get to our last one, take a little more time here, who've heard what I've just said before. Christ is the most important thing in the world. We could show of hands. I think every hand would go up. We've all heard that before, right? Some of you have read that for yourselves. Some of you, like me, dare I say, have preached it and continue to preach it and will continue to preach it to the glory of Christ, but you haven't fully comprehended. And we need to comprehend more the total satisfaction that is in Jesus Christ. You've tasted of it. You sort of see it, but you've yet to internalize it. And it's obvious to all of us that the blessings of God are great and manifold, but it's another to walk worthy of that call in light of the riches of Christ. When things get difficult, when things get stressful, it's easy to abandon the riches of Christ to go on to something else. Some might say it's easy on Sunday, but it's hard on Thursday because so often we trade the riches of Christ for a cheap copy offered by Satan. That he offers us something else that he says, this will satisfy you. Perhaps you've heard a sermon that convicts you. You'll be blessed by going deeper into relationship with Jesus, by going further and, and, and further into his love. But Satan comes along and out of that cry gives you a pacifier. Something to, to get you to be quiet for a little while. It's phony. It's fake. It's inauthentic. It's a temporary placation and appeasement that soothes you. It's something that you look at and you think, this will satisfy me. But all it does is take your mind off your loss. It doesn't satisfy you. It pacifies you. All of us have moments of dissatisfaction with the world. But unfortunately, we don't know the riches of Christ, and so we run to the imitation, the bogus, and the fake. Perhaps maybe you've, been, you've had a, a moment like this where you realize that you didn't know something after the fact. I think about it at a restaurant. Sorry all my illustrations are food, but they work. You've been at a restaurant, and you're with a group of people, and the server brings out the, on, brings out the food, and there's a couple trays or whatever, and you look across at the table about what everybody else has got, and you get food envy, okay? And you look at somebody else's plate, and you say, if I would have known that that was what that was, I would have ordered that. And what happens is after the fact, we think to ourselves, if I would have known my sin was going to lead me there, I would have gone towards righteousness. That's why we need to know the riches of Christ so that when the counterfeit is there right in front of us, we can run away from it. We choose self and sin, and when we do that, we are valuing Christ over everything else, which is by its very necessity a declaration that we misunderstand Christ. If we choose anything over Christ, we don't understand his true riches, and that's why we need to pray so desperately that we can understand this, because where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Whenever we pray that we need to know this. We need to get this because when we're parched, the call comes to revel in the glory and splendor of Christ. But Satan comes in and whispers in our ear, just watch some television. 
Just post, just scroll on social media. Post a picture so people will like it. Post a rant that goes against the grain. Join a bandwagon for the virtue signaling and pats on the backs, and we'll trade the glory of Christ for a dopamine hit on notifications, likes, comments, and followers. Instead of our spiritual hunger and thirst causing us to flee to the bread of life, we just buy a new pair of shoes. We buy a dress, a fishing pole, a golf club, a tech gadget, a car. And all of these things are the spiritual equivalent of being hungry and brushing your teeth. It's not that it's wrong. It's not helpful, though. It's not that it's wrong. It's just that it's not helpful. And a life full of things that aren't wrong will leave you no room to pursue the things that are right. Instead of coming to Christ's bosom for rest, we'll try to find our satisfaction in our jobs, our education. And when we get burned out on those because they won't satisfy, we'll say, oh, I have to take a day off. Oh, I have to take a vacation. And when that doesn't work, we'll swear off the whole thing and we'll turn to codependency, seeking to find fulfillment in our spouse and in our kids. All the while, Christ stands with open arms saying, come here, I want to give you rest, and we will run away from it because we take the facade and the fake. Instead of seeking fullness of joy at the Father's right hand, we will drown our sorrows in overeating or undereating. We'll work out to get skinnier, or we'll work out to get more jacked. We'll join a rec league sport because we think the answers will be there. We wake up wasted and parched and withered just to try another scheme. If you don't know the riches of Christ, when heartache is overwhelming, instead of falling deeper in love with Christ, you'll believe the, the lie that I did, that you can just whip out your phone for some pornography, and that'll solve your problems. And you don't think of it with that value analysis, but that's what we're trying to do. If that doesn't satisfy, or rather when that doesn't satisfy, you'll push the boundaries physically with your significant other, or you'll have a casual hookup with somebody, or you'll have an affair and cheat on your spouse. When that doesn't work, people try homosexual relations and changing their gender, because when we refuse to comprehend the hope of our calling, the only hope is that it's somewhere down the road, and further deviance is the answer. And it just leaves you broken. Now you may say to yourself, and it's a reasonable objection, how can you put gender reassignment, and Instagram on the same level. Indeed, the immediate consequences of those actions are miles apart. But they are the same in this fact. If you trust them for satisfaction outside of Christ, they will fail you every single time. If you try to find your worth and your fulfillment in chasing the dopamine hit, you will come back empty. And that's why I want to pray for you that you know the riches of Christ because he will satisfy. And there are some of you in this room who are desperate and tired and parched and weak and weary. And the call to flee to the sufficiency of Christ is on your heart and you know you should and you take the pacifier every single time. And I don't want that for you anymore. And Christ doesn't want that for you anymore. I think of this passage from our Isaiah study. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. God offers us life and abundance for free as a gift of his grace. And then Isaiah says these words that we've got highlighted here. And depending on the day, I either read them as he's exasperated or he's brokenhearted. And I don't know which. In one, he wants to just claw out his eyes with frustration. In the other, he can't keep the, keep, keep the tears out of his eyes. Why do you spend your money for that which isn't bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? 
Why do we run around with physical eyes thinking the physical world will satisfy when Christ wants to open our eyes to see the wealth and abundance found in Jesus Christ? So why do you do that? Why do you spend your substance for what is not bread? Why do you reject the call to participate in the bounty of Christ? Well, part of it is we don't understand it. But as we move along, there's another excuse that I think is just as important. Beyond the fact that we just don't know the riches, we misunderstand the value of Christ to choose sin. Paul also wants us to know the exceeding greatness of his power. Because here's the thing. If Satan can't convince you that it's worth it, or that, excuse me, that it's not worth it, if he cannot convince you that it's not worth it, he's going to try to convince you that it's impossible. If Satan cannot convince you that following Christ is, is not worth the sacrifice, he's going to try to convince you that you can't have the blessings that God promises you. And we fall prey to this. We fall prey to this all the time. Because what do we do whenever we're convicted a lot of times? I don't know about you, but let me talk about me. Here's some of the excuses I've made. When I was convicted, and I knew I needed to pursue Christ more deeply. I can't right now. I'm in school. Okay. I can't right now. I'm on a break from school. <laughs> I can't do it right now. We're, we're prepping for a wedding, and I'll wait till I'm married. Man, I'd, I'd love to grow and change, but my job has got me covered up. My kids are at this stage. I've got care for other individuals. I'm on my deathbed. And we can make excuses because we think to ourselves, only the super Christians can have this. And Paul wants you to know that everyone has access to this. Let's read what he says. He wants you to know what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age which is to come. Notice the level of power here. We believe the lie perhaps that we're too far gone, that it's too late for me. That all I can do is just come to church and sort of be there. That's all there is for me. And I want to say there's more for you than that. Because the power of God is exceedingly great. And that's what we want to call you into today. Let's notice quickly this word here that Paul uses here to describe this. He says the exceeding greatness of his power. It's not just great power, but it's exceedingly great power. That is, it's not some power that once had been exceedingly great and is now depleted, but it continues to spill and to overflow. It's superfluity of graciousness. In line with that, it exactly mirrors and follows how that plays out. And what does he point out? Do you want to understand the power of God? Do you want a concrete example of what the power of God looks like? You look to the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. You want to tell me God can't give you the blessings of, of, of life that come from obedience to him? Look to the empty tomb. You find me one person who is dead and lives forevermore. There are none. Because we can do certain things to make our life better. There's secular ways to do behavioral modification. There's, there's certain things we can find in this world that accomplish certain levels of power and influence. But you want to see true change and true power? You look to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And let's stop our excuses. Let's stop our excuses, because if we don't know the power of Christ, we're going to think it's impossible. And perhaps as you're looking here, as you're, as you're sitting there, 
You think, Jordan, I, I want a piece of this, but I just don't know. I don't know that I can have it where I'm at right now. I don't know what it looks like. And just because we don't know what it looks like doesn't mean that God can't do it. That's the beauty of it. That's why we need him to open our eyes because we are so limited. The only thing we're not limited by, it seems, is our excuses. And so let's drop our excuses today. Let's leave them aside. Let's see how Paul says this in, um, in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power which is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You want to get an idea of how powerful God is? More powerful than you could possibly imagine. That doesn't mean it always comes to us like we like for it to. That doesn't mean we get to plan out our lives and say, okay, I'm going to be in high school, then I'm going to do this, I'm going to do college, I'm going to get married, I'm going to do this job. That doesn't mean we get to plan out our lives, but it's better and it's more magnificent than what, than what we could possibly imagine. That's why we need to know the power of God. That's why we need to be persuaded of it. That's why we need to be convicted of it. God's not some genie to give us exactly what we want. But he is an almighty and sovereign God who gives to us what we need. And whether we like it or not, that's a whole lot better news. And so I don't know what spiritual growth looks like for you today. This is what Paul prays, though. He prays that because of what you already have, that you would come to know Christ more. And this is my prayer for you that I will continue to pray is that I give thanks for each one of you and how you've experienced that, what, what you have experienced with God opening your eyes and that he would continue to do so and that you would be open to doing more, that he would continue to allow you to comprehend the ways in which Christ would satisfy and the power of God to accomplish his purposes and your obedience. Maybe as you're sitting there right now, the blinders have come off for you. I don't know. Maybe you're like, I know I should see something, but I still don't see it. I haven't had the aha moment, but I know that I should. And you want our help with that. We want to help you with that. We want you to have a life that is not just spiritual mediocrity. Because spiritual mediocrity is miserable. It is just enough of a taste of Christ to be miserable, and it is just enough of the world to ruin you. We want to call you out of better than that. A life where you're chasing the next thing, that you're just doing enough to get people off your back, but inside you're empty and you're dying. We want to pray with you. We want to help you. We want you to no longer be beaten and bruised. We want you to no longer find it in things of this world. We want you to turn from spiritual mediocrity and have eyes that understand the glory of Christ. We want to pray for that right now. If you need help, if you want your eyes open to more fully comprehend the beauties of Christ, that is a wonderful prayer, and we stand ready to help you. If we can do, if we can do that for you, please come. Have a seat on the front. Please stand and sing. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. For further information about our church, please go to normanchurch.com, normanchurch.com.